Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you live your life enthusiastically today and tomorrow and every other day of your life. I am your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist and also author of the award-winning book, Rejuvenating, the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As listeners to the podcast know, we bring you interesting, informative guests, but also guests who live their own lives with enthusiasm and can help us to do so. And today, we have a real special treat for you. Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, senior fellow at the Greater Good Science Center at University of California at Berkeley, and New York Times bestselling author. His books have been published in 29 languages and include Neurodharma, Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture. 900,000 copies have been sold in English alone. And I have to tell you that among all those things, I think the best prose he's ever written was the blurb he did for the cover of my book, and I'm much appreciative for that. His free weekly newsletter has 150,000 subscribers, and his online programs, which are tremendously worth it, have scholarships available for those with financial need. Rick has lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard, and taught in meditation centers worldwide. He's an expert on positive neuroplasticity, and his work has been featured on the BBC, CBS, NPR, and other major media. Rick began meditating in 1974, and he is the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. He loves wilderness and taking a break from emails, and we may have to have a separate podcast on how you take a break from emails. Someone's still trying to work out. Rick, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. I'm thrilled to have you on the program. I'm thrilled to be here, actually, Ron. And I was telling my wife earlier that when I first got in contact with you, I was honored and thrilled, actually, that you would reach out to me. And I had such respect for you. I have such respect for you. So I'm very, very happy to be doing this with you. And the topic that you have really pioneered, rejuvenating, that's fantastic and personally relevant as I edge toward my 68th birthday, you know, in about six months. It's kind of wild to think I'm in my 68th lap around the sun right now. And I hope to have at least 30 more. It happens quickly for all of us, but if you can live it as enthusiastically as you can, it's going to be great. I'm sure you're going to have many more and many more positive ones. So let's get started. There are so many things I could be asking you about. You're so versatile and have so much to contribute. I've told people that if I couldn't be myself, I'd like to be Rick Hansen, not only because I'd be several years younger, but also because you've contributed so much in the areas that are of most interest to me. And I think maybe the place to begin is with the concept of neuroplasticity, and especially positive neuroplasticity. Those may be foreign words to some of the people listening. Maybe I can just throw that out to you and ask, what is it, and what's the positive part of it? Yeah. 
Well, we have a shared interest in this as psychologists, of course, and it's been clear going all the way back to the time of Aristotle that as people learned things, as children learned to walk, as adults learned to be more patient with each other, say, or to become increasingly enthusiastic or mindful or compassionate as they age, as there is any kind of development or healing that's durable, there must be an underlying change in the body that supports it primarily in the nervous system, and especially in its headquarters, the brain. That's the fundamental idea of neuroplasticity. And it can be changed for the worse, as well as for the better. If people become more anxious as a trait, if they become traumatized as a trait, depressed as a trait, there must also be underlying changes in the brain. The word for those changes is plasticity, thus the fancy mouth word neuroplasticity, or the really tricky one, experience-dependent neuroplasticity, which speaks to the ways in which our experiences change the brain. The brain is biased for survival purposes to be changed especially by negative experiences of stress, irritation, defeat, sorrow, anger. You know, that's what kept our ancestors alive back in the Stone Age or even all the way back to Jurassic Park. But today, even if it's well-intended by evolution, it tends to make us more vulnerable to getting angry or hurt or affected by our painful, difficult experiences. And it draws our attention away from the beneficial experiences that are the first of the necessary two steps for any kind of personal growth. So people listening might ask themselves, oh, these days, dealing with what I'm dealing with, like right now we're dealing with a pandemic beginning to move through America. People might be dealing with losses of various kinds as they age. I've lost both my parents as I've aged and they age. So how do we deal with that? So as we deal with our challenges, what would be good to have inside our minds? What would be good to have inside our hearts? To feel more mindful, to be more resilient, to have more of a sense of meaning and serenity in our life. So then the question is, how do we grow those? And to finish here, we grow them in a two-step process. First, we must experience them. And second, we must internalize that experience. We must convert it in some way into a lasting physical change of neural structure and function. That's the two-stage process of learning. That means that we can help ourselves each day as we age. My dad was still learning as he approached his 97th birthday. He was learning how to be more skillful. He was learning how to cope with the stroke he had in his last six months. He was learning how to, how to be more skillful with his young, hot girlfriend. She was just 80, you know, and he had to kind of work some things out with her. You know, he had to learn some things there too. So he was learning. And the point is we can all learn. And what we can do is help ourselves. When people listen, for example, to authorities like you, or they just go through their day with a moment of gratitude, a moment of calming, a moment of inner peace, a moment of love, slow down, help that experience sink in. Keep those neurons firing together so they wire together more effectively. Stay with it for a breath or two. Feel it in your body. Focus on what's rewarding, what feels good about this beneficial experience. You want to give to yourself. You want to receive into yourself. And that's how you will grow a little bit every day, grounded in science in very practical ways that are under your own influence, which is especially important when we're pushed around a lot these days by big external factors. Now, you're younger than I am, so maybe you learned it in school, but when I was going to grad school, there was kind of the thinking that the brain kind of stops growing at 
you know, yeah. if you made it to 30, the, your brain was probably, you know, about as developed as it was going yeah. to be. And there wasn't a whole lot we could do. We could still learn some subjects, but in terms of brain development, sounds like you're saying that there's something different and something that we can control. You're right about this sort of conventional view that somehow we were stuck. But on the other hand, that flew completely in the face of observation in which people, for example, in midlife were still developing. There's lifespan development for better or worse. If people in midlife can become more traumatized or depressed, something's got to be changing most likely inside the coconut, you know, inside the head, right between the ears. So there was always an understanding that there had to be some kind of plasticity. But what is new, I completely agree with you, is the understanding of how extensive it is. So we have existing neurons wiring together, forming new connections. We have existing connections changing, getting stronger or weaker. Other ways that the mechanisms, if you will, of brain change, right? Hopefully positive brain change, which is what you and I are interested in, positive neuroplasticity. That also includes shifts of ebbs and flows of neurochemicals like dopamine and serotonin. It includes changes in the expression of genes, not the genes themselves, but their expression in the nuclei of neurons. That's epigenetic changes. Research also shows that parts of the brain that are more active, kind of like building muscles in your arms, they get more blood flow. They literally become measurably thicker as a result. Connections form or get weakened in helpful ways between different regions of the brain. The mechanisms are really, really, really remarkable. But the bottom line takeaway is this, which for me is very practical and intimate. Our experiences matter. They matter not just in the moment subjectively, but they matter objectively because they leave lasting physical traces behind. And the brain is biased toward the traces left behind by negative experiences, and it is helped by doing the two steps that I described in terms of positive experiences. You know, notice the ones you're having that are beneficial. They're normal. They're authentic. They're not million-dollar moments. From time to time, create some, like by deliberately calling up something that you feel thankful for. And then once you're having that experience, once that song is playing in the inner jukebox, or as kids these days say, the inner iPod, turn on the recorder. Stay with it for a breath or two or three. Feel it in your body. Help it sink in. And in that way, you can help these experiences really matter and gradually grow the good inside yourself each day in your brain and in your life. Is this something that people can just decide to do? Like mm -hmm. I have friends yeah. who are out of shape and decided one day that I'm going to start, you know, working out at the gym right. and they got in better shape or I'm going to eat healthier. Can we consciously overcome some of the either negative history or negative thinking? 100%, 100%. Now, depending on how ingrained a habit is, as you know, as someone who, like me, is very engaged in positive change, mental change, behavioral change, interpersonal change, you know, depending on how ingrained it is and how much effort a person makes. I mean, there's a, you earn the results of your own practice, right? You earn the fruits on the one hand. On the other hand, it's profoundly true that each of us has the power multiple times a day to help something useful sink in. And you have to get on your own side to do that. You know the joke, you may have heard it, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. 
<laughs> right? So we have to be the light bulb who says, you know, maybe life has frankly kicked me in the teeth. Maybe I've had some tough knocks. Maybe I've been dealt an unfair hand. Maybe I've really been mistreated. Maybe I've, I'm dealing with a really tough condition, a health ailment, whatever it might be. That said, today, no matter what has happened in the past, we have a chance to learn something new. We can grow a little bit every day. We can grow the good every day. You know, and a person has to decide to do it. You're exactly right. There's a little bit of incidental learning. It's called incidental social-emotional learning. A little incidental increase in our traits from our states, our experiences. But most of our beneficial states, most of our beneficial experiences are wasted on the brain. Whether in formal settings like psychotherapy, as probably you and I painfully know, as well as in informal ways, people you know, just moving through their day. That's why I don't know how to really underline this point any more than I have. You know, as you move through life, what I try to do is to be like a sticky net in this sense. So as like life moves through, the waves of life move through, to not resist the negative, let it flow. Don't try to block it because then it sticks to us, right? Let it flow through. But on the other hand, in these small ways, you know, you see a picture of your granddaughter on your refrigerator. It makes you happy. You smell your coffee this morning, as I did. Thank goodness, you know. You feel inside your own grittiness. You know, maybe life really does suck right now, genuinely. And in you is this scruffy, gritty, I'm going to get through this, you know, the feeling of determination. That's really important to feel. And then slow it down, like I said, for a breath or longer to encourage neuroplastic change, to help those neurons have enough time to transfer the passing state into the neural structure that will foster it as a durable trait. From passing states to lasting traits. That's the process of personal growth. And we can help ourselves do it every day. What a wonderful thing, especially at a time when you feel like your options are kind of maybe running out as you age. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that anymore. But inside your mind, you're always free. Inside your mind, you are always potent. You can always help yourself a little bit every day. No one can do it for you. That's what gives the teeth and traction. It's the real deal, but no one can stop you. That's really empowering. And I remember something that I've heard from you that I've used numerous times, sometimes giving you credit, sometimes not. But I remember in one of your presentations, you talked about uh, the notion of somebody driving from home to work or I guess home to meeting. And how many cars do you pass? How many of them hit you? You know, and do you stop and take the time to appreciate you're in this big machine passing lots and lots of other machines and how miraculous it was that you, you got to where you wanted to on time, yeah. nobody hit you. And we're not used to thinking in those terms, but actually that's, you know, what we should be noticing. I think once you begin to become conscious of some of these daily events that work out, even if they're not dramatic, yeah. your mind begins to be alert to them. That's really true. And I think you're speaking to two things. First, this is not positive thinking. We want to notice the cars around us, right? We want to keep our eyes open. And 
if there is like a little funny bump on her nose, we want to go see the doctor and get it checked, right? Because you don't know. We want to see the real thing on the one hand. On the other hand, we don't want to get overly sucked into the negative. Our brain is designed to just suck us right into the negative, that one red light that's flashing on the inner dashboard. So we need to compensate for that tendency. Deal with the one red light, but keep being aware of the green lights all around it. You know, all the bad things that haven't happened. The fact that in this moment, at least, you're basically okay. In this moment, at least, you have the gift of a human life, which is extraordinarily rare in the solar system, certainly, if not our galaxy or universe. So what a profound gift. Why not enjoy it as best you can today? In part, because as you grow strengths inside of various kinds, mindfulness, resilience, compassion, happiness is a strength. Sense of meaning and purpose is a strength. Spiritual development, I'm very interested in the process of awakening, the upper quarter or tenth of human possibilities in terms of what we can actually experience, the upper quarter or tenth of mental health, we could say, in the ultimate sense. So, you know, every day is an opportunity for that. Why not keep helping yourself along the way? Wonderful advice, which brings me to the question. Most of these podcasts are done in a way that I say they're evergreen, that they can be related to at any time. But uh, there's no getting around the fact that we are currently recording at the time of the coronavirus crisis. Many of us are shut down. If you do turn on the TV, that's all that there is. At this point, anyway, the counts are getting higher both in terms of numbers of the disease and and numbers of deaths. We haven't been through this. And, you know, a lot of ambiguity, a lot of stuff being thrown at us. How do you stay positive, assuming that you do? And how do you deal with something where, again, you don't have a lot of control over, but there presumably are things you can control? I do three things. And I want to use this opportunity, if it's okay, to talk about this in a risk summary way, but quite directly. The first is to take appropriate action, whatever you can. So if you can start, you know, getting a little extra food in your refrigerator to avoid trips to the supermarket, you can do that. You can wear gloves when you go out in the world and then take those gloves off when you get home before you touch anything at home. You can do these things, right? That's within our control. We can't, most of us, change what the federal government is doing. We don't have that power. But what we can do is, within our own circle, take appropriate action. And in my own view, especially if a person is in a more vulnerable age bracket, or really anyone, it's to avoid getting infected at all. Take no chances at all. Younger people, if they're infected, They're carriers, and they can spread it to other younger people and to older people. And as public health experts teach, what we want to do is flatten the curve so that at the peak of this, it does not exceed the capacity of our healthcare system, which is already being really, really stretched. And so for me, I'm I'm really quite straightforward about it. I'm not a fearful person. We can be prudent and cautious without being fearful. And that's a very, very important distinction. And if we are being prudent and cautious and other people say we're being alarmist and silly, reply by saying, no, I I don't feel afraid. I actually feel calm because I'm taking reasonable precautions and I'm reducing the chance of infection from small to zero. Well, 
Mathematically, as you know, anything is infinitely more than nothing. Small is infinitely more than zero. So I'm interested in zero risk, frankly, so that on any given day, I go to sleep at night not worrying about what might have slipped into my world. So I think that's a very important thing to disclaim that. And if it makes other people uncomfortable, if it's inconveniencing for them, if it's inconveniencing for you, too bad. You know, in our age bracket, there's a very genuine statistical risk that's well established at this point that if someone 60 or above does get ill, they're going to probably have about a 15% chance, if not higher as you get older and older, of needing a hospitalization. And there's a very good chance that if you need a hospitalization, about you know a third of those people are going to need a respirator, which is not always going to be available, especially if it happens during you know the peak of the number of cases. So get real about it. And a certain fraction of people, especially in our bracket, who get this may well eventually die. Those are serious risks. So I'm not kidding around. You know what I mean? I'm not uptight about it. I'm not angry about it. But boy, am I clear about it. And that's the first thing I would just say to people. It's okay. You know, as people age, they often get infantilized, as you know. People pat them on the head. Oh, Grandpa, you're so sweet. Don't, don't you worry, you know. Back off, you know. I don't want to be patronized by anyone at any time. And it's important to claim for ourselves the right to take precautions and get through this. You know, come on. We're going to be on the other side of this. We just have to get through the next six to 12 months, particularly. You know, and I think it may well reach out into 12 months, but especially the next three months, it's really important to not get this thing and not pass it along to anybody else. So take appropriate action. And thanks for tolerating my rant. Second, calm and center. Calm and center. Calm and center. You know, it's like the teachings in developmental psychology. Children need a secure base to move out into the world from. Long-time rock climber. (laughs) Want to move from secure foothold to secure foothold, you know? That's how I'm still here (laughs) after a lot of wild experiences. So... Calm and settle inside yourself. And again, this is your territory and mine. There are a lot of ways to do that. Exhale. That naturally slows the heart rate because it involves a parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. Bring up the body memory of the trait of grit and resilience and strength you've accumulated over time of the feeling in your body of being determined and muscular and resourced inside. Bring up the feeling of others who care about you. That will also calm the center. Recognize that in this moment, at least, in the present, you're basically okay, no matter what the future holds. And in this moment, at least, we can be grateful for all that has ever been, that has been good, which can never be taken from us. And we can, even if it's meaningful for a person, and it is for me, tune into deeper layers of consciousness that start to feel increasingly transpersonal beyond your own. If nothing else, just that core of calm and spaciousness, stillness, clarity, wisdom, deep down inside every single person, with or without reference to anything spiritual, calm and center. And if you have to make people pause, if you have to slow it down, you just have to say, I I can't deal with all those emails. I can't deal with the dishes today. They're going to pile up. That's the way it is. I'm triaging inside my own mind. I'm triaging inside my own mind. I'm just going to lay that down. My dad, you know, grew up in North Dakota on a ranch, and he had a lovely expression. He would essentially just sort of wave his hand a little bit. It was like a little gesture, you know, like he would brush away a fly, a 
buzzing around the horse he was riding. Just, he would say, don't fuss with that. It wasn't shaming. It wasn't like, oh, you're dumb to worry about that. It was like, you let that go. Drop the chalupa. Just let that one go. So calm and center. That's number two. Really, really, really important. And that probably means for many people using this time when we're all kind of shut in to increase personal practices of well-being, whatever they are. Take a bubble bath. <laughs> you know, take a long bubble bath. Reread that trashy novel that just was fun. Meditate. Pray. Watch good content. Listen to good content like the Rejuvenating you know, podcast. Whatever. But build, you know, like calm and center. Last, tend and befriend. You know, this draws on the theories you, you probably know, Ron, from Shelley Taylor at UCLA, that there, there are different ways to handle stress. One is the classic fight or flight. The other is one that she studied mainly in women initially, but clearly is available to all of us, whatever our gender is or beyond gender, to tend and befriend as a way to manage our own stresses, to help others, to be kind to them, and to connect with them, to tend and befriend. That releases things like oxytocin in the brain and natural opioids and good things that endorphins that help calm us down. And we can then help others because as I've been thinking a lot lately, they're scared too. They're scared too. You know, and it's so important at this point to hold others in our heart, to realize that they're cranky too. You know, they're freaked out too. They're dealing with a lot of stuff too. They've had familiar routines that they used for comfort or entertainment, relief, disrupted. Now they're much more on their own. They're in the pickle too. We're all in this together. And precisely because we are herd animals, thus herd immunity, precisely because we are social. We're profoundly social. We're arguably, certainly psychologically, the most social species on the planet in the history of the entire Earth terms of our experiences, which are a lot richer than the social experiences of ants, let's say. Because we're social, we are vulnerable to an epidemic. Therefore, it's precisely through relationships that we must help each other. We depend on each other at this time. And it's only through depending on each other and being dependable for other people that we're going to get through this okay. So those are the big three for me. Take appropriate action and feel entitled to make your own judgments and to take action as you see fit. Second, calm and center, calm and center. And third, tend and befriend. That's terrific guidance. It's especially meaningful at this time, which I guess brings us to the next thing. Uh, Hopefully we will all get to prove that we're resilient. And I know that's another topic that you've worked on extensively. You've written the terrific book about resilience and recognize some of the terms like calmness and so on, the core of calmness and strength and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about how does that stem from the other work that you've done and how should we prepare to be resilient? It's a little bit hard to be sitting here confined and uh, think about it, but maybe we actually should be starting that process now. Oh, it's interesting. Well, resilience is the capacity to just deal with challenges without being overwhelmed or become dysfunctional. And we need to be resilient, obviously, for the enormous challenge of one kind or another, such as what's sweeping through us right now. 
we also need to be resilient just to deal with life, just to keep on going, you know, driving in traffic, uh, managing just, uh, you know, all the emails coming, whatever, dealing with quarrels with other people, setbacks in our career, dealing with economic issues. Right now, the whole economy in America and the world is being shocked, and we're definitely going to go into a recession. And people take a look at, you know, frankly, their life savings in the stock market and plummeting, and that's pretty alarming. So these are challenges as well. So how do we grow resilience, right? We need to draw on the resilience that we've got, which is created. Resilience inside someone is based on inner strengths of various kinds, like calm, clarity, fortitude, grit. Compassion for oneself is a major factor of resilience. A sense of gratitude is a factor of resilience for what is authentically true. Thankfulness is a factor of resilience for Half the population in America, and probably 80% of the people worldwide at least, some sense of spirituality is a factor of resilience. So these are feeling cared about, secure attachment, you know, internalized sense of those who love you and a, and a sense of your own warm heart. These are also factors of resilience. Tried and true, established by studies by, you know, frankly, legendary top-tier academics like you. Ronald Kaiser, you know, this is legitimate stuff. Okay, so these are factors of resilience. And how do we grow them, right? However resilient a person is, today, you can be more resilient tomorrow, period. I'm telling you that as a neuropsychologist, you can be more resilient tomorrow, a little bit, at least. So how to do that? Well, we're back to that two-step process of personal growth, the movement from state to trait, essentially, when you have a chance to experience a factor of resilience, such as calm or relaxation in your body or a sense of gratitude or a sense of meaning or purpose in your life or feeling cared about by others, when you're experiencing that, or you can just kind of generate it inside your own mind by calling it up or thinking about something that helps you feel that, like reminiscing about, for me, an outdoor guy, being in Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite Park or I was recently in Joshua Tree National Park, one of my absolute favorite places. You know, just pulling the memory up, what it felt like, or a time when you were with other people, even if they're no longer with us today, but it feels good. Whatever it is, when you're having that experience that is a factor of resilience, help yourself learn from it. Not intellectually learn from it, but emotionally learn from it, somatically learn from it, in your body learn from it, by staying with it for a breath or longer, feeling it in your body and focusing on what's rewarding about it, all of which are factors of neuroplastic change. By doing those three things, anyone is good, all three are better, and there are other details on my website, freely offered, a lot of stuff about this. But the takeaway here for me is have it, enjoy it. When you have that experience, that's a factor of resilience, enjoy it. Stay with it for a breath or longer. Don't just do, 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 do channel surf onto the next thing or let other people run on your parade. No, inside the inner temple in the inner sanctuary of your own being, your own mind, you know, help that experience really sink in. And that will enable you to grow resilience every day. Sounds like so many things are really tied to being self-aware of knowing what's, what's going on. You know, it's kind of, again, to use the gym as an analogy or healthy yeah. eating as an analogy, the fact that Something is there yeah. doesn't mean you have to eat it if you're not hungry and it's not mealtime. And I think once you begin to stay in tune with what you tell yourself and be aware of it and 
don't just let the course of events take you away. I think that's really important stuff. I know a lot of it is in your book, Resilient, and one term that was really new to me, maybe it shouldn't have been, but was the term agency. Oh, great. We don't have tons of time, but I do think it's such an important concept. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about agency. Right. Well, uh, to kind of build on what you just said there, it's helpful for people to just remember the feeling of being loyal to another person being a friend to another person or to being helpful to another person. What does it feel like to be helpful, let's say, appropriately to another person? And then take that same feeling, knowing what it is, which almost everyone knows what it's like to be sincerely, genuinely for another person, kind of on their side, trying to be helpful, even if you don't know them super well, or maybe they're your your beloved partner in this life. Then take that same feeling of being helpful and apply it to yourself. What would your day be like if you brought to yourself that sense of ordinary human helpfulness, down to earth, natural, non-special, but to bring that attitude of helpfulness to yourself? It would change your whole day. And that's the foundation here, just like you're saying, yeah. And if you have that attitude of helpfulness, then you're gonna start looking for value. It's like we're hungry. We need food, psychological food, like, gratitude or calm or grit or compassion, right? We need those foods. If you don't care about being hungry, you're not going to look for the foods. But for example, if your friend were hungry, you would be helpful with your friend to find that food, right? You can bring that same attitude toward yourself to find those foods of calm, gratitude, meaning, purpose, spirituality, love, whatever factors you're trying to grow for your own resilience. If you're trying to help yourself, then you'll look for those foods and you'll notice them when they're right in front of you and you'll taste them when they are in your mouth. But it really comes down to, you know, being on your own side, which then goes to this thing you said about agency, which is grounded in the research of Martin Seligman and others about learned helplessness. In other words, it's remarkably easy for mammals, dogs or humans to acquire quickly a sense of just defeat, entrapment, futility, inescapable pain, defeat, and acquire a sense of helplessness. That might have been adaptive back in the Stone Age or definitely in Jurassic Park because when animals just feel defeated in that way, they hunker down and they get away from potential predators and they also get away from aggression inside their own band live to see the sunrise, therefore, and have a chance maybe of passing on more genes. Okay. But still, today, we are very vulnerable to acquiring learned helplessness. It's a feature of the brain we've got. So it's very important when things do happen that we're helpless about. You know, there's a lot in this life we're helpless about. I'm personally helpless. I cannot change the current occupant of the Oval Office in the White House of of America if I wanted to. I, I can't make our son who lives with us, who's 32, not naturally really miss his friends, which makes him a little stressed and grumpy. And I can't help that. You know, I can't help getting older every day, right? Can't help that. So what's useful when there are things are happening that we're helpless about is to help yourself 
exercise what's called agency, being like a hammer instead of a nail, in the sense that you can make choices, that you can act upon things, you can influence things. So help yourself find some sense of acceptance, some sense of serenity, as best you can, with what you can't change, right? This is the serenity prayer in a nutshell. You know, may I have the serenity to accept what I cannot change, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The prayer from the great Christian theologian and, and writer, Reynold Niebuhr, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I hope. But anyway, so the takeaway for me is help yourself come to terms with one way or another. I draw my own Buddhist practice, frankly, and my own kind of background in life and seeing a lot of difficulties in life and how to cope with them. So I draw on that to kind of come to terms with what I can't help while simultaneously, very important, focus on where you do have agency. Focus on what you can change. Maybe you can't change how your son feels, but you can choose to put more salt on your potatoes or not. You can choose to say a word to your partner or you can choose not to say that word to your partner because that would not be wise to say that word to your partner. Let's say you can make those choices and it may sound silly, but actually focusing on the feeling of agency when you decide to put ketchup on your french fries. I like putting ketchup on my french fries. You know, what's that feel like? Yes, I am choosing ketchup. Yes, I am reaching for the bottle. Yes, I am using my muscles to pop the top. Yes, yes, yes. And weirdly, again, experience-dependent neuroplasticity. By kind of marinating in and highlighting those experiences of ordinary agency within your reach, you then can compensate for the tendency to acquire learned helplessness and keep feeling that there's always something you can do, if only inside your own mind. And right there, you know, inside your own mind, maybe you can't change anything about the situation your body's in. Maybe it's in a state of, of significant decline. Maybe you can't do anything about your financial circumstances or the people around you. And always still inside your own mind, you can exercise agency over where you place your attention. What do you think about? What do you focus on? And you can also shift your relationship to what you're experiencing. You can move into a mindful spaciousness about it so that even if the pain in your back is continuing, you step back from it and hold it in spaciousness with compassion for yourself, which changes everything. You're shifting your relationship to it. That's an act of agency. And if you can, you can even shift your attention away from that pain in your back, let's say, to other parts of your body that don't have pain or other things in your life that are still okay or the fact that even with the pain in your back you know, and your concerns, you still have a warm and caring heart. You're still a good person and you can place your attention on that back. These are all ways to exercise agency. And as you do that, you know, feel it so that increasingly you feel efficacious. Hey, that's another word for you. Not just agency, efficacy, right? Efficacious. And it's deeply important because helplessness is a slippery slope into depression. And as people age, one of the things to really come to terms with is the things that we are helpless about. But if we start getting sucked into the vortex of learned helplessness in a significant way, as research shows, that tends to take us into depression. So to buttress our mood, it's very important to find ways to be peaceful about what we can't change and highlight our sense of agency 
over the things we can indeed influence. Boy, I learned so much listening to you every time. Well, thanks for letting me rant. And, uh, you know, when everything's la-di-da, right, uh, we can just kind of, you know, just sort of hang out and shoot the breeze. But these days, it's like, no, yo, the storm is here. Winter is coming. We got to get it together, folks. Yeah, I mean, for some of us, we thought things were, were fairly rough before, and then things were going not in a great way in this country and so on. And yeah. when you get this, it's really important to know there are some things that we can control. Right. Just have a couple of other areas I want to highlight because you've given us so much and I really appreciate it. I want to ask about meditation and where it comes in. Is this something that is kind of like rock climbing for you, that it's an interest that you happen to do that coexists with this? Or is it part and parcel of this whole neuroplasticity, positive psychology stuff? Oh, wow, that's really great. So almost everybody has been meditative, right, for at least a breath or two in a row, sometimes with a spiritual dimension to it. Prayer is a form of contemplative practice. And many, many people will be meditative without any sense of spirituality involved. And that's perfectly fine. For example, you know, you, you kind of go outside and you look up at the sky. And for half a minute, you're just kind of calmer and you have a sense of spaciousness and mystery and kind of amazement at everything up there in the sky, the moon, the stars, maybe some clouds. Maybe you see a plane going by and you just imagine what it's like to be in that plane right there because you've been in a plane yourself and they're up there and you're down here and you're being meditative. That's your meditation for that moment. So we all have a sense of a meditativeness and there are different aspects of meditation. There are different formal practices, but I think the essence of all of them boils down to being in the present with a growing sense of kind of spaciousness and stability inside your own mind, rather than just being swept away by thinking about one thing after another or worrying about one thing after another, or swept away with like an emotional reaction to something, anger, fear, and so forth. So, poof, you kind of plopped, you know? Like you come home from a long trip, carrying your bag, and you plop it, you drop the suitcase, and you just plop in your couch, your favorite chair, you sort of let go for a little bit. That's meditation. And, you know, then you can go deeper and deeper and deeper if you like. So there are many kinds of meditation. Meditation is to the mind what exercise and movement is to the body. It's a fundamental mental health skill or practice. Lots and lots of research about this. Find the meditation that's good for you. And it's kind of like the trainers say, you know, what's the most important exercise to do? It's the one you'll actually do, right? <laughs> so the most important meditation to do is the one you'll actually do a minute or more ideally every day. If someone were to say to me, look, I've got 20 minutes to give to meditation, what should I do? Should I spend in one day just 20 minutes straight or better to do one minute a day for 20 days? I'd say the latter. As you, again, from research on learning, repeated trials learning, you know, a little thing repeated is usually more effective than a big thing masked. Although sometimes a big thing masked does have an intensity that really breaks through and shifts us in a major way. So a little bit every day is good. You know, you might want to make a commitment to do something meditative a minute or more a day, even if it's the last minute, you know, before your head hits the pillow. 
And so for myself, super briefly, I grew up in a very ordinary, you know, middle, middle class, lower middle class, suburban environment outside of LA, Los Angeles. And I had a very ordinary childhood, although there was a lot of emotional pain in it, even though nobody was horrible to me. It's multiple reasons for that. And I grew up a casual Methodist. Uh, you know, we went to church twice a year, especially when I was young. But I always had a feeling for what are the ultimate matters? And as a child, I had a very wistful, poignant sense just in the background a lot that it sure seemed like there was so much unnecessary unhappiness all around me. It wasn't my fault, but it was my responsibility to figure out what to do about it, you know, which ultimately led me into psychology, the human potential movement in the early 70s, and then into sort of meditative practice and the, the teachings from the Eastern traditions initially, especially Buddhism. And then later on, I've come to appreciate the contemplative teachings, the wisdom teachings from Judaism, Islam, Christianity, and certainly the shamanic or indigenous first people traditions around the world. And then lately through secular mindfulness forms, they all have tons and tons of wisdom, you know, so you find kind of where your own home base is and then build from there. I think as we approach excellence in any form, whether it's gymnastics or awakening, people converge on a kind of standard, you know, as you approach the asymptote, you approach the pinnacle, the top of Mount Everest, you know, people start looking more and more similar, whether it's a Christian saint or, you know, a secular mindfulness teacher with 30 years of practice in Manhattan. You know, they start, they start seeming more and more like each other. So find your own route up the mountain of awakening, wherever you are, maybe down on the dusty plains, maybe in the lower foothills. Maybe you're actually spending some time up there in the, the higher reaches of the mountains of human possibility. How happy, how wise, how loving, how strong can anyone ever be? Great. You know, find your way up the mountain, right? But meditation itself, really, really valuable. I started in 1974. I think everyone can meditate. I'm fairly calm in my nature, fairly cheerful in my nature. I kind of take after my dad in that way. You know, it's pretty easy for me to just sit and observe my breath for 10, 20 minutes in a row, staying with it most of the time. Other people naturally are just, they need more stimulation, a little more spirity. If not in the so-called ADHD, I don't think of it as a D. I don't think it's a disorder. End of the spectrum, but highly impulsive, highly distractible highly stimulation-seeking, highly creative, often highly intelligent. You know, whoever you are, whatever you're like, find your meditation, which may mean walking up and down in your living room kind of slowly, or meditating while you walk the dog, or while you brush your daughter's hair, or while you do the dishes, bringing mindfulness into that. Whatever, you know, works for you, maybe focusing not on your breath, but something more stimulating, like gratitude or loving kindness, or the feeling of your whole body as you breathe which is a really effective practice. So that, that's it. That's what I just say about that. I'm sure a lot of people are happy to hear that, that they don't have to make a major commitment to something that, that some people find scary, sitting there yeah, for just, 45 minutes, but yeah. something that we normally do. I'll give you a, a kind of a quickie if you want. Sure. All right. You know, I, I teach meditation. I have a lot of background here. So, you know, it's kind of, there's a certain cred, credence, credibility, street cred, with what I'm about to say. So first, unless it's alarming, see if you can sustain attention to three breaths in a row. The feeling of breathing, your chest, in your body, maybe around your upper lip, three breaths in a row. If your mind wanders a smidge, bring it back. And just think of that as an experiment. 
can you stay with three breaths in a row? If you don't want to do that with your breath, you could just pick a word. You could pick a prayer, you know, hail Mary, so forth, or anything, a word, a sound like om, whatever, anything. And see if you can stay with it for about half a minute, right? That's a good start. And then another is to see if you can use those three breaths and maybe three more breaths to help your body kind of calm, kind of calm. And see what it's like to be rather than do. You're just being. You're not trying to get any work done. You're not trying to get anywhere. You're giving yourself a break. You're just being for a minute. See what that's like and see if you like it. And then if you like it, do it again. Maybe add more minutes that time or do a single minute in the future and then build from there. That's very within reach. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Just going to bring up one more thing and then see how people can get your information. But right. until fairly recently, I thought the one thing I had over you, Rick, was that I had my own word, rejuvenating. And suddenly I hear that May 5th, I believe it is, a book is going to be available that is called Neurodharma which I believe is a unique word of yours now. Yes, indeed. Aside from the fact that since the book isn't out, I just kind of wonder what what the term is. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Or what can we expect from the book? Yeah, yeah. What the book is about is the combination of the most recent and useful brain science about our own brains that is relevant to being happy and loving and wise every day. The book's about two things, really. Three things. It's about the most recent, the coolest brain science. It's about the deepest wisdom from the meditative traditions of the world about how our minds work. And then third, it's about applying those two things, which is what I mean by neurodharma, really. It's about applying those two things in seven specific ways. So that over time, we develop, and I'll name the seven, greater steadiness of mind, more stability. Second, warmth of heart, compassion and kindness for others and for ourselves. Third, what I call resting in fullness, which is really emotional balance and contentment, equanimity. We can grow those three things. Similarly, we can grow the remaining four of the seven, the fourth being a sense of wholeness being whole and complete in and of yourself, while receiving nowness, that's the fifth practice, really resting in the present and staying in the present rather than worrying about the future or resenting or regretting the past, which is a beautiful thing, staying in the present, while sixth, opening into allness, my poetic term for the kind of a softening of boundaries, feeling less separated, less beleaguered, less isolated, less cut off, very relevant, these days as people shelter in place during a pandemic to open into allness and, you know, increasingly, frankly, start feeling more and more like you really are kind of one with everything in a beautiful way. While the seventh practice, finding timelessness, having a sense of the infinite, the mystery, the ground, what the Buddha called the unconditioned, 
deathless, unaging, not subject to arising and passing away, and therefore the ultimate refuge. So those are the seven. And we can grow them in our brain, as it were. We can grow their basis in the brain so that, in effect, we build up the neural basis of steadiness of mind or that sense of being very happily connected with everything. We can really change our brains based on new science. So the book is very accessible. You don't need to be Buddhist. You don't need to be a yoga person. I just grabbed that word Dharma out of respect, frankly, for the Eastern traditions, which have a very, very penetrating analysis of the mind that's not religious. It's not a religious analysis of the mind. It's very grounded in psychology, the deep penetrating psychology of people with thousands of lifetime hours of meditation, for example, with that kind of microscopic laser-like focus on their own mind and then telling the rest of us what they learned when they did that. So neurodharma just brings those two together. You don't need a background in neuroscience. You don't need a background in spirituality or meditation. There's nothing preachy about the book. It's super practical and very friendly. It really brings people along. Wow, no bull. It is so cool. It is so hardcore. It's like the coolest science with the most profound wisdom. Like put them together and then use it every day in your life. Whoa, I'm just lit up about it. I've been marinating <laughs> myself for the last couple of years writing it. I'm just thoroughly stoked about it. That's a California term, stoked, right? (laughs) But who wouldn't want to know that, right? Who wouldn't want to know the neatest brain science, the neatest science about your own brain, combined with the most profound wisdom about your own mind, and then bring them together and apply them and use them every day. That's what that book's about. So just like everything else that you do, it's kind of a combination of the best of science and the best of the internal positive growth producing stuff that we can do. Yes, that's where we started. And hopefully anybody listening to the podcast and anybody who follows you can see that we have control over a big chunk of our lives. Not everything we have control over a big chunk of our lives. We have control over a a big part of our brain development. And Good thing to know, you know, I think as a human being, that should give us a lot of pride and should help us be resilient, be happier in general, have more well-being, be able to treat others better and so on. So with Neurodharma, first of all, is the book available for pre-order yet? Oh yeah, with a lot of great bonuses. So people ought to check it out. And it's just full of useful ideas and tools and little experiential practices, little mini meditations that people can do to deal with the current times. This material is really useful in everyday life to build up that core inside that's unconditional, increasingly, of resilient well-being. It's really useful in that way. And for people who've you know, got a little bit of uh, meditation under their belt, a little bit of therapy under their belt, a little bit of personal growth under their belt, and they're interested in, okay, what are the intermediate, even advanced stages of practice? What's up there in that upper 10% of the range of mental health, the pinnacle of human possibility? This book is chock full of useful ideas and tools for you too. Great. So how do people find out about the book, the bonuses? How do they find out about your other courses? Oh, sure. Got so much to offer. So we will also have it in the show notes. Yeah. uh, The simplest thing is to go to my website, 
rickhanson.net. And at that website are tons and tons of freely offered resources, as well as very well-organized, high-value, inexpensive online programs. And one in particular, if people are interested in this neurodharma territory, kind of the coolest stuff around, I think, I have an online program called Neurodharma Online that people should really check out. It's well curated. It's based on a meditation retreat I taught, very well edited videos from that put together with a lot of bonus material. That's the Neurodharma Online program. And they can find out about it and anything else, including lots of freely offered stuff at my website, rickhampson.net, S-O-N, rickhampson.net. Great. Again, we will have it in the show notes. I'm very proud that I've been able to present to the world a real overview of Rick Hansen and his thinking. You've been very generous both with your time and with your information, and I just can't thank you enough. Oh, Ron, I thank you. I look up to you. I know as a psychologist what it means to have those four letters after your name, ABPP. And, you know, you're really a senior academic. I've learned from you as well. I think what you're doing in the world is terrific. And I'm very grateful to you. So thanks for this opportunity, too. Okay. And that wraps it up. This has been an interview with the eminent psychologist Rick Hansen, PhD. This is Dr. Ron Kaiser. My website is www.thementalhealthgym. My book is Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. I hope that you will visit the website, and I'm always interested in your comments and suggestions for other people to interview on the podcast. Once again, thanks very much. Stay well, stay safe, stay happy, and keep producing wonderful stuff for us. Thank you.